My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. You'll never guess who I got in the studio this week. Eddie Gallagher. He's undergone a total of eight tours of duty, six as an elite special forces operator serving on the front lines of combat. He's a consummate and professional warfighter, earning medal after medal for leadership and bravery in battle. In total, Eddie has earned the Bronze Star with V for Valor twice, Meritorious Unit Commendation, Presidential Unit Citation, two Navy Commendation Medals, three Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medals, and four Good Conduct Awards. Now I want you guys to keep those last awards in your mind as we get through this. His last deployment was in 2017 to Iraq, where he was tasked with leading his platoon to clear ISIS from Mosul. Eddie was awarded number one SEAL chief and number one SEAL platoon. His record and reputation as an elite warrior is rivaled only by a few men who have served by his side as special warfare operators and heroes who have gone before him. He doesn't seek recognition for his work, but his service demands the respect and honor owed to the special breed of warrior ready to answer our nation's call. In the studio tonight, Mr. Test that assumption at your earliest convenience or in his terms, fuck around and find out. Eddie Gallagher joins us. Welcome, brother. Hey, thank you for having me on, brother. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for that gracious introduction, man. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, we, we have so much to talk about, but I want to get right into it because there's so much. I want to give a special shout-out uh, to your uh, wife uh, for sending me everything that she did. She still works tirelessly on this case, and it's very oh, yeah. um, it's amazing to see the kind of stuff and the levels that she will go through for you and for this family and for everything that's been going on. Now, what I want to start out with is before I ever contacted you, before I ever read the book, I saw the story, I saw the book, and I thought, okay, if I read this, is this going to be one where guys try and just clear their name? Hey, I've never done anything wrong. I'm a good dude. I'd never do anything like that. Reading your book is the absolute exact opposite of that. You tell everything you have screwed up in your life from being a teenager, from getting in trouble, from hanging out where you weren't supposed to, to finally getting your life together when you went to the recruiter. And it's a really refreshing opening in a book to go, yeah, this guy is saying, look, I'm no angel right off the bat. Make no mistakes about who I am, but we need to address certain things. Is that a fair assumption for the book? Yeah, I mean that's that's awesome that uh, that you just you know stated that because that's exactly how I wanted to present the story or just tell the story. You know, I'm I have nothing to hide. Uh, you know, I and like I said, I'm not a uh, perfect human. Uh, neither is anybody else. That's you know, uh, or you know, any, any other uh, aspect of life. And I just wanted to be completely transparent. You know, and be like, yeah, this is who I am, but what happened to me and what happened to my family, we did not deserve any of that. Uh, you know, take, take the context out of how the media portrayed me, um, and all, and all of that, but it's, um, 
I definitely, I just wanted the reader to be like, to know who I was and that I wasn't trying to bullshit anybody. And I, I think it comes across. Now, a question comes to my mind when you say it like that. It, it makes me wonder, is that what your, I'm going to call them opponents during out the, the interview, accusers, opponents, whatever you want to call them. Do you think that's the big problem with them? With you is that that you're the kind of guy that's like, fuck it, I mess up, I'm not perfect, but I'm going to hold everyone to a standard and myself, even if we mess up that standard. Do you think that was a lot of what kind of rubbed everything wrong to start out with? Yeah, I think that there's a bit, that's a big factor. Um, you know, of course, when all this was happening and even still couldn't wrap my head around what would bring these guys to do something like this. Uh, you know, it's just not my DNA to ever pull a stunt like that. But, you know, the more I thought about it and got different aspects, especially from my wife, who was obviously very close to the case. And, um, yeah, these guys were, there was a lot of jealousy um, involved. And to me, I'm like, well, what are they jealous of? I, I'm nobody. I'm just another dude trying to make it in this community. And But there definitely was. I think they, they couldn't stand the fact uh, that I was succeeding um, at everything I was doing at the time um, and but that I was brutally honest about who I was I'm like you know I don't know how this is happening I'm just work all it is is just hard work um, and also the fact that you know I had a very uh, I had a good marriage um, I have a beautiful wife wonderful kids uh, and you know it's it's uh, unfortunate but in that community you know that's that's few and far between um, it's a lot of broken marriages, uh, a lot of drama. So I, I think, you know, that also played a, uh, a factor in it as well. They saw these things that they didn't have and they, you know, they decided to hate on me for it, um, which, I mean, it's, it feels weird to say now still, but I do think that is a factor. So I want to talk a little bit about your, your early military career. I don't want to get into the weeds about it, but I think that there's a important aspect of it that comes through this entire book and through this entire story that happens to you. Uh, and it's your time working with the Marine Corps. Um, and I think it really kind of sets something in motion inside you because let's, let's rewind, I don't know, eight months, a year before you're really serving with the Marines. Okay. You're, jumping around on couches, hanging out with dudes that are 30 years older than you, just no real goal in life. Then you go in the Marines, you become a corpsman who, if I remember correctly, you're like, I don't even know what a corpsman does. I don't even know what that is. You yeah. become a medic, you do all these things, and then you, you, you start working with these guys and you get this sense in you of, of kind of accomplishment and a purpose in life and kind of a purpose-driven life that kind of served you all the way through this. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the Marines? Because I think it's an important aspect of your story and this story. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I always say, you know, I was, I was definitely blessed in my career and God was with, you know, my eyes closed and you're, you know, just like, here we go. Take me, you know, uh, I have no, I had no real direction. Even when I joined the military, I just knew I wanted to get out of where I was. Uh, at that point. And, you know, I could have, could have mold, been molded into anything, you know, if I went into the fleet, um, if I decided to go on a, you know, on a ship or whatever, I think I, I just would have taken on uh, whatever uh, command or whatever job I had. Uh, but thank God I went to the Marine Corps. 
and you know that's i it's kind of a phrase that you know i was like reborn uh, when the marines like i they raised me in the military uh they they definitely taught me what discipline is what hard work is uh you know and then i got plenty of opportunities and that's that's a great thing about the marine corps you know if you really show you're motivated to be there um you can surpass their standards you can be squared away at all times they open up opportunities for you um, and I got to go to some really awesome courses when I was there, you know, uh, salt climbers course, which that's, that was a special operations course at the time. I was, I think, 19, 20 years old in there with a bunch of older special operators. And, you know, I actually failed that course right at the end. Um, but that was one of my biggest lessons learned, you know, in the military. I, I was grateful I got to go and it just showed me that, you know, I have to work harder. Um, and then I was afforded the opportunity to go to Marine Corps water survival school and then become an instructor. And then eventually... I was afforded the opportunity to go to Marine Corps sniper school uh, as a medic. And, you know, that was all due to the men that I served with, uh, the way they trained me, um, the way they kept me disciplined. Um, I honestly think my time in the Marine Corps really uh, reflected on who I became uh, in the military. You know, in, in saying that and in everything that has happened, <clears throat> when you look back on that and everything that you did, is there a little bit of, of course there's anger with everything that happens, but everything that you had given, when all this kicks off, is it a feeling of anger? Is it a feeling of betrayal? Is it a feeling, what is it going through you? Because of course there has to be a million feelings going through you, but but what is it when this happens? Because you talked about it, even in the Marine Corps, you were, you want me to go here? You want me to go here? You want me? I mean, you just went anywhere that anyone would send you. Was yeah. there a betrayal at the end? Oh yeah. There's, I mean, there's definitely a, a betrayal aspect. Uh, you know, when this first initially happened, um, even like leading, leading up to the point where I was arrested, I was definitely uh, confused, um, sort of, just uh, bewildered on why I still had faith. I mean, I had faith in the system. I had faith in my command. I had faith in the leadership. I, you know, this was just like you said, this was a institution that I had given everything for. Um, and I would have kept giving everything for, including my life. So I, I really was, it wasn't until, um, you know, even before I was arrested, when my kids were pulled out at gunpoint and my, uh, by NCIS, that's when the feeling of ultimate betrayal came in and, you know, the next day I went to my command um, and I got no accountability. I got just a cold shoulders. And that's when the the, the feeling of betrayal really kicked in, um, you know, and that's that was a long, hard road uh, to go through uh, with that thought process. But, you know, in the end, um, you know, th this was unfortunately just a bunch of bad actors um, that made some poor decisions, um, you know, and I think it's it was it's hard for the uh, American you know, uh, wonder why like these, these higher up, these officers would make a decision like this, uh, especially at that time. But now I think with these current events, we can, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's all unfolding and you can see that these officers who make it up to a certain rank are just politicians in uniform and they're going to do whatever the, you know, politicians want them to. And I think that's what it really came down to. And I think so. Can we walk through a couple of your other, before you get to this SEAL team, before you take over, I kind of want to establish a pattern of 
how it worked out for you when you went to teams, when you were working with teams, and 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 it can be younger ranks coming up into command positions, all that kind of stuff. But you never had as much trouble as you had with this last one. We'll get into it. Can you explain the difference between training with those guys and going out with those guys, and then when you get to SEAL Team 7? Just an overall for people that wouldn't understand what you try to explain all the time about the differences in the teams. Yeah, sure. Uh, to sort of uh, break the myth of this, you know, I think everyone thinks like the, the whole teams is one big brotherhood and, you know, everybody is super tight knit. That's, that's not the case at all. The teams, you know, is a, the brotherhood is there, but there are tribes within the team. Uh, you, and, you know, my first two platoons, um, that was the closest I've ever been uh, to anybody uh, in, in NSW that those that platoon was super tight knit. Uh, we did everything together. Uh, our families got together all the time. Um, it was just there was an unspoken bond uh, between all of us. And we're still that way to this day. Um, and, you know, after you leave those two platoons and you start doing more platoons, each each platoon and, and team has its own personality. So you're entering a whole nother world and you sort of have to adapt uh, to that. Um, you know, and I had I did three other platoons, you know, after that and I had no problem at all. Got along with all the guys because really, you know, there might be a different personality, but the the ideals are the same uh, and the end state's the same. We all want to hold each other to a standard and we all want to go deploy to a combat zone and crush the enemy. Um, that is the goal. Um, and it wasn't until I really got I got to. This last platoon, uh, it was just different from the get-go. Uh, the guys were very cliquish. Um, there, there was a lot of in uh, in-house drama already when I came into that platoon. They, these guys were constantly talking trash about each other. Um, they had piss poor leadership before I had gotten there, which they constantly told me about. Um, so there was just a lot of drama going into it, and then there was not the same camaraderie. Uh, as all my other platoons, they, you know, everybody, it was treated as a nine to five job. As soon as, you know, they got off work, they went home, which was, you know, that's fine to each their own. Uh, but I think those were some red flags uh, leading up to what had actually happened and transpired on deployment. So in one of the differences, and, and I don't know, because you never really specifically talk about ages, when you get to this SEAL team, is it younger? It seemed to me reading it that that it's very young seals in here. Yeah, the, so the platoon. So I was at SEAL Team Seven. Um, the platoon I was in was Alpha Platoon, and yeah, that was a very young platoon. Um, I think the oldest guy um, was ten years younger than me. Um, no one had combat experience at all. Uh, they had, I think, they the the most deployments they had done is two. And those were over to Guam or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it was a very green platoon. Uh, but they, you know, they were very hungry. They, or they said they were going to uh, deploy to a combat zone. And when I took over that platoon, I told them that was going to be my goal, was to be the best platoon at the team. So we had our choice pick of where we wanted to go. Uh, made that known from the get-go. And everybody was on board. Uh, they were on board until they saw what... The work was uh, to you know to be the best. Um, you know, I had those guys training a lot uh, before we started workup, um, which workup is our six-month training up uh, cycle before we deploy. But I, I knew 
we really had to work on the basics beforehand and really build our build this platoon up. And uh, so, yeah, I, I implemented a lot of training and that did not go over well with some of those guys. Uh, you know, they wanted to just go home if they didn't have anything to do. Um, a lot of uh, bitching uh, behind the scenes. Um, and then, you know, that real bullet started flying and it was a very, you know, it was a busy deployment. That's when their personalities really came out. And that's, you know, I had never, I heard words from SEALs, you know, in that platoon, I thought I'd never hear, which was, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Um, I don't believe in this. Other thing you got to think of with the age difference, right? These, some of these guys were five years old when 9-11 happened or, you know, I think one of them, the youngest guy was not even alive yet. Uh, so they're why we're fighting this war are completely different uh, than ours, you know, who 9-11 has been driving my career for 20 years. Uh, that's the reason I stayed in. That's the reason I keep deploying. Uh, to these guys, we shouldn't even be over here in the first place. Uh, so you're sort of combating all those ideologies as well uh, while, while trying to leave these men. So it was, a, it was difficult. But here's my question, and, and it stood out in the book, and, and, and I talk to people that I work with about it, and, and, and as you know, I, I'm in law enforcement now. And so I, I talked to the guys that, that I was working with uh, reading the book. What didn't make sense to me was when you get there, these guys bitch about that they had poor leadership, that they were the worst platoon around, that, that all these different things, and you give them the opportunity to change it and go, okay, that's fine. You didn't like that. Let's do this then. And you change it to the opposite and they got a problem with that too. And it, yeah. it didn't make sense to me when you say, like they say, I didn't sign up or they didn't know what it would take to be the best. And I had a guy at work ask me to ask you, cause he's reading the book too, after I started it. And he wants to know why the, these guys are seals. They've been to seal training. They've made it through buds. They know what it takes to get something to earn it. And, and whether that's changed from the past to now or whatever, it still takes a school. It still takes training. It still takes persistence to get this. It, it just seems weird to us that, that they would get there and go, well, I didn't sign up for this. No, that's exactly what you signed up for. I, I and I don't understand what set it in their head that made it so different to them? You know, and that's, that's another rabbit hole you can go down is, you know, the, I think our community became very popular over the uh, past two decades. Um, you know, and a lot of that is due to our accomplishments, but I think that uh, we let ourselves be thrust into the spotlight. Uh, so everybody now knows what the Trident is coming up through high school. Um, seeing, uh, the, the Trident and the SEAL teams put on this pedestal and like, it's almost like rockstar mode and they're joining to just have that Trident to just be, uh, part of that, you know, legacy, but not, they don't really want to do the job or, and I think they, they think, you know, some of, and I'm not saying this is the whole generation either, because I, I'd say this is a small part of this generation. Uh, that, you know, has made it through buds and gone into the SEAL teams. The rest of them are uh, just some really great guys. But, you know, this group, um, I think they, they've joined for the wrong reasons. They, they've sort of joined for the glory of being a SEAL, uh, but don't actually want to put in the work and do the job. Um, and the guys in my platoon are not the only ones. I mean, that, that problem has been talked about. It was like the elephant in the room that nobody wanted to say for years now. 
And I think my case really just brought it out into the open. So how do you fix, uh, and I don't even know if you can answer this, how do you fix that problem? You know, it's that's got to come from the leadership. Uh, that's got to come from the very top. Uh, it's it's also we need to sort of, and I think, as look at what we're doing, uh, what what is our job in the military? Um, I think we've allowed, the military has allowed itself to become one big social experiment, um, and that has been the downfall. Uh, we're, you know, we're low the stand, lowering the standards for diversity, uh, lowering the standards for fat people, lowering the standards for just about anything. And I think we really need to bring back the standard and be like, hey, this is, if you can't make it, this is a, we're a wartime uh, force here. And we, we should not be uh, accepting weakness of any kind or uh, mediocrity. Um, but unfortunately, that's what has happened. Uh, they need numbers. So that's the first thing they're going to do is lower the standards and get more numbers in. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Don't you think it's kind of a double-edged sword? I mean, when we weren't at war for 20-plus years, those standards were held to pretty well. And the crazy thing about it is those standards are held well, not in wartime, but when it comes to wartime and you really need those standards to uphold – that's when you have to see it kind of go to the wayside because like you said, now we're in a numbers game. It's not a, it's, it's mission. Uh, but numbers are a big part of getting that mission done. Would you agree? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, but that's, you know, uh, you're going to sacrifice, uh, quality over quantity then. I mean, that's just naturally going to happen. Uh, and that's been sort of the detriment soft communities, all across the board. Um, everyone has had the same complaints um, that because we've lowered the standards, because we've taken uh, the quantity over quality approach, then we're seeing repercussions of that. Are they really with this? Are they really special forces anymore when they, when they take all those standards down, when they make quantity over quality, is it really special forces anymore? Or are they kind of augmenting just the the big navy big air force big army is it just an augmentation system then i mean that's what it can feel like at times uh you know it we it's it's still we're still special forces right uh, we're still able to do a job um that the conventionals aren't able to do um and i think what we've seen or what i've seen over time you know especially in my the past uh 15 years in iraq and Afghanistan is we've sort of conventionalized ourselves uh, to get the job done. So, you know, we, the soft community has been doing most of the heavy lifting uh, the past 10 years. Um, you know, the, you know, it's not taken any away from the conventionals, but we have been overworked the past 10 years. And I think that, you know, due to that and due to the fact that we've pretty much taken it upon ourselves to say, Hey, we can accomplish any task you give us, then we've sort of, uh, open the doors be like, okay, well now you can do this conventional job, which I mean, the job that I had in the, in uh, clearing Mosul, um, the way we went about it, uh, it was definitely had some conventional tones to it. Um, you know, it's riding out in the day and Matt B like, here we are pretty much just riding right into the fight, which is not a very unconventional way of uh, fighting. 
So can you walk us, since we're talking about that now, let's just jump right into it. Can you walk us through that deployment? I don't want to ask a lot of questions up front. I just want you to kind of explain what's going on, what the feeling of the group is before you get there, while you're there, coming towards the end, and just where you're seeing little flashpoints happen. Because I'm sure this did not blindside you completely. I get that, that some of it did but you had to see these little flashpoints at certain times over there. Would you, is that a good assumption? Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely saw uh, a lot of flashpoints uh, happen over there while, while we were on deployment. Um, I'll backtrack real quick. So yeah, we, you know, I uh, picked up chief at this platoon in 2016 um, alpha platoon. And then we uh, did a workup, a full, full cycle of training together before we deployed. Um, We did really well as a platoon and got to choose, uh, where we wanted to go, which was uh, Mosul, Iraq. Uh, I had one of my best friends was uh, over there during this time. Uh, we were turning over with him, and uh, they were doing some good work, but I knew that they would not get all of it done, and we were going to be uh, handed a pretty good uh, uh, golden egg of, like, clearing western Mosul, um, uh, a lot of action. So we got what we wanted. Uh, we ended up deploying to Mosul in February 2017, um, did a real quick turnover. I think we were on the ground for less than 48 hours before we started uh, operating and going out, um, advised, assist in a company, which means we were given a Iraqi partner force, um, to go out with each day. And pretty much, uh, we were supposed to be advising them on how to clear Mosul and which they didn't listen to anything that we said, uh, um, and, to drop bombs on wherever they wanted, which they wanted everything bombed all the time, uh, which we had to sit there and tell them, no, uh, you actually have to go fight for yourself. And we were all are tasked with accompanying them as well uh, to a certain point to help them clear. Uh, we were not allowed uh, to do house to house clearing that was left up to them, but we could support with uh, organic fires, which means our sniper rifles, rockets, uh, machine guns, um, what have you. So, uh, we, like I said, we hit the ground running, had our Iraqi partner forward response division, and um, we were going out pretty much daily, um, clearing Mosul block by block. Uh, we would usually be behind the front line about 800 meters. Um, and so we started setting up uh, sniper hides and OPs um, a little bit closer to the front line so we could engage with our organic weapons. Um, as soon as we started doing that, we saw a lot of positive effects. Uh, the Iraqis started actually clearing faster, just came on. So we kept on doing that. Um, it was very, uh, very busy. And like I said, we were working daily, so not a lot of sleep. Um, we, our living conditions were complete crap. Uh, you know, we had no electricity, no plumbing, um, just, you know, eating Iraqi food or MREs. Um, and so the guys were starting to complain uh, pretty quickly about the living conditions. Uh, we were crammed up in a house, uh, and that was the whole platoon. So I made the decision to split the platoon up. I spent, I sent half the guys back to Rubeal so they could rest and refit for a week, and then they would flip-flop with the other half uh, weekly, uh, while myself, uh, my OIC, um, stayed out the whole time. Um, so I really thought that there was nothing to complain about at that point. And they were expected to come out and work seven days, seven days on, seven days off. Um, that, I guess, wasn't enough 
for them. Uh, they were still complaining. These bitches and gripes were behind the scenes. Um, I was hearing, I was hearing a little gripe, but you know, also you got the nature of a platoon. You know, there's always going to be bitching. Um, guys are all, if they don't have anything to bitch about, then you know they're they're bored. Uh, so <clears throat> I took those bitches and gripes as just being natural. Um, and uh, it wasn't until about halfway through deployment where I really saw some guys. Um, they just were not of the same caliber of guys that I've gone out with. Um, I thought that, you know, I'm in combat, so I really wasn't coming down on them hard at all about, you know, the way they were acting. I was like, maybe this is just them getting used to it. Um, and, you know, it just went on like that. Uh, as a leader, you know, it's very difficult to uh, remove somebody from your platoon for uh, being a coward or um, not not uh, being up to par. Um, you have to have a lot of paperwork behind that. You know, I'm not a kind of a paperwork person, so I, I did not do a lot of paperwork on these guys at all. Um, so I just, you know, kept rolling with it. Um, I had I had talks with them all throughout the platoon uh, deployment um, and did address some of their concerns, uh, but told them that this was the job and that we weren't going to take any breaks. Um, we were going to keep going forward. Um, the mission was to clear Missoula, and that's exactly what we were going to do. Um, so let me, I, I, I want to interrupt here for a second. Like I said, I'll interject every once in a while. I want to play devil's advocate to you, Eddie. Um, yeah. And I want to say, when you say that, that we wanted to go to Mosul, we worked towards that. A lot of these guys and how they talked when they talked to NCIS, when they talked to whoever it was in the chain of command, they said that was what you wanted, not them. How do you address that? Because I, I want this I want this point to be shown because it was shown time and time again in the book. How do you address that of these guys saying that wasn't what we wanted? We didn't ask that. We didn't ask to go out all the time when, in fact, you had younger guys asking to go out with you all the time. Yeah. You know, that's uh, still to this day, I, I think that that's a difficult uh, situation to handle. Right. Um, you know, I. I thought the way I addressed it, um, which was having these little kumbaya sessions, um, blah, blah, blah. But I, you know, thought I resolved it through communication. Obviously I didn't. Um, I, I honestly think the only way to resolve it with those guys was, would be to meet their needs and be like, okay, then we won't go out. It's that, you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of other, uh, seals out there that talk about leadership or extreme ownership and like everything's your fault. Uh, I just don't think these guys were up to the task of doing the job. They, they weren't meant to be seals. Um, you know, just because you make it through buds uh, does not make you a seal. It just shows you have grit. Uh, it's what you do after you make it through buds that makes you a seal. And these guys did not have it in them. So when you say that and, and you talk about going out and setting up the, the sniper positions and things like that, what I felt in the book was that's when you, uh, that's when things kind of started taking a bad turn. Um, that's where some of the accusations later on came out from, um, being out there for seven days, uh, in specific setting in towers and stuff in the sniper positions. That's when a lot of your yeah. trouble started brewing at least that's the way i felt when i was reading the book like 
Okay, well, here's here. Th this is where these guys are saying it. And this is where some of the stories started getting outlandish. So I, I guess I'm just wondering how that doesn't, especially with your type of personality, what you had done in the past, how that shit doesn't get stomped out out there. Like where it never makes it back here, where it's a one-on-one -on -one off, you know, off the beaten path talk where this shit is going to end because lives are at risk here. I, I don't understand how that didn't happen. Oh, uh, well, that didn't happen because all these things that they were telling NCIS were never brought up out there. Uh, that, okay. was not, that was none of their concerns out there. Their concerns were they were tired. Uh, they were going out too much um, that, you know, they didn't believe in the mission. Not once was anything brought up about, murder, shooting civilians, uh, or anything like that. That wasn't brought up until about six or seven months after we came back from deployment. People, especially when I was before my trial, we were like, oh my gosh, this guy was, you know, going around shooting all these civilians and doing this. And I get how the civilian could think that could happen, but any special operator that looked at my story, I've talked to my this is complete bullshit because if this was happening out there, if, if I was doing all the things they were saying I was doing, that would have been stomped out, like you said, right there. You know, no matter what rank you are, if you are out there just being rogue and doing whatever you want, that'll be put to an end real quick. And that has happened, you know, on previous deployments and other platoons I've heard about or I've seen it. You know, it's sometimes you got to rein guys in. Um, the fact that <laughs> these guys claimed I was doing all of this and... At ISR, uh, which are platforms that watch us from the sky every day, multiple platforms of ISR, um, the Iraqis would have reported it if somebody was just out there swaying, uh kids and women. I mean, there's multiple sources that would have reported this, um, but none of them did because none of that ever happened. This was completely fabricated from these guys when they got back. Uh, and... You know, they had NCIS who was coaxing them on and just being like, oh, yeah, tell us more. Tell us more. Yeah. Well, when you talk about that and, and you say that that it would have been, here's what stood out to me. What would have been you talk about ISRs and Iraqis and other people would have would have said something. But I think and don't get me wrong, someone can go off the deep end. But in all your deployments before in everything that you've done. There was never even, I mean, that wasn't even a thought from someone like that wasn't even that you could even do something like that. So why in the twilight of your career, this is what really stood out about the whole story to me. Why in the twilight of your career would people even think, yeah, that's a possibility. He's never done it before. We've never reprimanded him for going, uh, uh, you know, rogue on his own or anything. And on his final twilight deployment, He's just going to exact revenge on the world. And that's, that is what's so crazy too. You know, it's, it's, uh, and that's what the command was trying to sell people. Um, especially after they had locked me up. Uh, I had, you know, a lot of people in the community were pissed and were asking questions like, why are you locking him up? What's going on? The man was pushing down was, Oh, he snapped. He, he just snapped on this point, which people that knew me, like now that doesn't make any sense, but that's what they kept pushing. I mean, they were given briefs about it to teams while I was locked up. When you have these younger 
officers and younger enlisted listening to their commanding officer tell them, yep, he snapped, he did this, he's guilty. They're going to believe that commanding officer because they have no reason not to. Why would he lie to them? He did. Uh, and that would, you know, that's when you get the politics and all that crap involved um, as to why he would lie. And, um, but yeah, that's, <laughs> it's still, it's still, I laugh. I mean, I can still laugh about it because I'm like, it's so ridiculous. stuck with that theory. And, uh, you know, obviously it didn't pan out for them. Well, but even like when you say, okay, that was the story. He snapped. Well, don't you take care of that when the person snaps, not eight months later, you don't go, you know yeah. what? You acted a little crazy. We're going to have to deal with this now instead of going, okay, that guy needs to get set down somewhere because he quote unquote snapped. I mean that, that, and that's what didn't make any sense. I, I, as I told you, your wife sent me so much stuff. So I'm watching the NCS and in interviews. One of your accusers comes in, they do the bio for about, mm, I don't know, three minutes. And we, we can get into that whole thing about, I just need your bio information and you're just going to be a, a, a number and, and all this kind of stuff within 11 yeah. minutes of setting down and about roughly three to four minutes uh, of bio information. So within seven minutes with, I, I would guess one to two questions possibly being asked, he had already accused you. Yeah. I mean, he, I think it was either the first or person or second. It was delay. I think he interviewed, I mean, this is, Hadn't interviewed him yet. He's the second person he interviewed, or maybe it was the first. I forget. It was the first I, or I think day. it was the first. He says, we already have our take on the case. We already know. That like, was the second day. You're so, right. That was the second yeah. day. So they, they went into this, and that's, you know, what it's you have to explain to people. This NCIS agent, Joel Warpinski, he was the combination of incompetent and ambitious, and he went into this with a a prosecution formed and was like, this is what I think happened. And I'm not going to take anything that goes against my theory. Um, well, what they thought, because they were like, Oh, this guy's going to listen to anything we say. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he was coaxing them along the way. Like, Oh, give us some more. Uh, you know, well, and, I mean, we, let's break it down. I, I told you, I, I wanted to give you the law enforcement perspective of it in, in watching it. Uh, a big thing to me was when he sat down, um, who they're talking to. Let me see. I got to I got to pull it up. Uh, I, I think it's Corey Scott that they're talking. No, no, no. I'm sorry. It was Craig Miller that they're talking to. Yeah. When he comes in and sits down, he tells them, I brought a notepad with all my notes so that I can remember what happened. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. You I mean, yeah. I, I get what they're doing, you know, Hey, it's been eight months, but when someone tells you, Hey, I brought this notepad that I filled out with all this stuff. Okay. Let me ask some questions. How about you put the notepad away? And if you need to go to that, to reference something like, Hey, did this happen at this time? Well, let me look through and see if I wrote that at this time. He was looking at his notes while he's giving his interview. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's what was so crazy to watch, you know, all, all these interviews and the way that NCIS conducted the investigation. I mean, I've been to some interrogation schools or whatever, but, you know, when I watched 
that videos videos when I was locked up, I'm like, how can this be allowed to happen? Like this is not only breaking so many rules, but it, um, and it wasn't until, you know, I actually had, uh, Bernie Carrick, um, came on my team and, uh, Tim Parlatori uh, came on and I, you know, I, they were watching the interviews and Bernie was like losing his mind. Um, which is like, this is the most horrific, uh, interview I've ever seen. These, they, these guys have, they're amateurs, um, which NCIS is, um, uh, but I mean, that just proved it. Well, it, it, and it's more than that. It, it it was so interesting to me to watch these interviews because, yes, there were questions asked, but it really wasn't an interview. It was someone who said it was more of I can compare it to a complaint. If someone were to come in and say, look, I want to complain about this, this, this and this. Here's all my points to it. Here's the facts that I have behind it. It wasn't an interview. It wasn't digging in and going, well, what happened before that? And where were you here? And where were you here? It was okay, I'm just going to listen, and every once in a while to feed into the story, I'm going to ask a question. Like when I said that within the first 11 minutes, because I was watching the time as I was doing it to see how fast it happened, he had already said, I walked up, I walked around a vehicle, and he first he said he didn't understand why you were there. Even though you were a medic and you were rendering aid, he said, yeah. I don't know what he was doing there. Uh, and then about a minute later, he says he was rendering aid. Then he says he comes around, and you're leaning over the body with a knife in his neck. Yeah. And I was like, okay, wait, wait a second. You just said he was rendering aid. And by the time he walked around the vehicle, he was doing this. Why render aid? Exactly. There's his stories. I mean, was so ridiculous and you can tell, I mean, we obviously have proof of it through their text messages. These guys got together to concoct this little story. Um, why they chose this incident uh, to make something out of, I, I'll never know. Um, they, they must have thought they call from one of their friends uh, right after deployment. And he told me, he was like, hey, I was at a party and these guys are coming up with a plot to take you down. Uh, and, you know, at the time I was like, okay, you know, just keep me informed or whatever. I'd, whatever. Uh, you know, I think these guys concocted their plot, but once they were separated in different rooms. They, I mean, they weren't smart enough to keep their story straight. And what's funny is in the end, you know, out of, I think the four of them that were like, Oh yeah, he stabbed him. Only one of them stuck with that story uh, on the stand. And, and I would almost disagree with you there. Yes. He did say that you did that, but he had kind of a different outcome of what happened after you stabbed him. Yeah. And, and that was pretty confusing, but I have a theory on that. You say, I don't know why they picked this incident. I have a theory behind it. That was your reenlistment. What better way to market and be able to go, this is where we were, this is what happened, because that's going to be a big thing that's going to stick in people's mind. That's not just rolling through a village. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, even, yeah, I mean, that, I guess that's how they could have picked it. It's, I mean, to me, I'm like, I don't know why they picked any incident. Uh, to do anything but i'm like if that's the one you chose and it i mean I, I think did you listen to the uh trial audio at all uh just bits and pieces of that one because that that one gets a little more you got to sit and and really buckle in on those yeah if you want a good a good laugh uh you know listen to craig miller's ncis interview and then listen to his trial audio uh, i mean he changes his story on the stand starts making up 
stuff he never said to NCIS before. Uh, like, and this was the real turning point for me in the case or in the trial. I think it was everybody thinks it's when Corey Scott got up there and said, oh, I killed him. Um, that wasn't it for me. Uh, what was it for me is Craig Miller, you know, on the stand said that I had stabbed him multiple times now and that blood was squirting out of his neck like baby vomit. And to me, I was like, there it is. I was like, you, you know, you screwed up because, yes, there is a picture of me with the dead ISIS fighter um, right after there is no blood anywhere on me, no blood on my hands, no blood on the knife. Uh, you know, the prosecution sent it off for DNA testing. I don't know how many times found nothing. So right there, I was like, you have lied yourself to a point where you're it's done. Um, and, you know, you can listen to the rest of his uh uh, trial audio as well and it's uh, he gets amnesia about 10 minutes through and then all of a sudden can't remember anything well i've i by the way i wrote down some of the stuff that he said that day he uh <laughs> he got his stuff he got his stuff wrong for the day of the death he got the dates mixed up he knew yep. that it was the reenlistment day but he got the dates mixed up uh he stated that um he would go out in the field and he didn't have comms for days when he was out in the field and stuff so he could <laughs> which that's a whole nother uh, rabbit hole to go down on that. Uh, he stated um, that uh, he got the reenlistment story wrong about where the body was in relation to the ceremony. Uh, he stated that he shouldn't have to be in that photo, that he was, he felt like he had to do it instead of just taking oh, yeah. part of it. Uh, he was getting case updates from the NCIS agent who was actually texting him case updates, which we don't even need to go down that one either. Uh, he was caught laughing with TC and delay uh, while the drone flew over and and landed on the dead terrorist. Uh, he got help from the NCIS agent to get his concealed weapons license. It came out while he was on the stand. Uh, and then he tried to give you the night back. They, uh, they didn't talk about it in the trial, but I want to talk about that in just a second. Now, I want to I want to say how you describe Craig Miller when he walked into the courtroom. He was no physical specimen, just a lanky, weak-bodied, tall glass of pudding. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's Craig in a nutshell. Uh, I mean, he's, I think when people have a, you know, they envision a Navy SEAL or whatever, they think like, okay, somebody that's in shape, you know, looks the part, um, Craig, and, you know, it wasn't just Craig. It was Craig, DeLay, Tom McNeil. Most of those guys, none of them kept up to the standard. Uh, none of them worked out. Um, they just, like I said, they were all just like, I sort of, it was hard to describe when I was writing. I'm like, yeah, it's like a tall glass of pudding. Like, just, <laughs> ugh. You know? So, I mean, we got six things right there that he got wrong. Um yeah. Which is crazy. Now, I want to jump back and forth with real accusations, and we're going to go to the trial. We're kind of kind of break it up, so it's going to jump around a little bit. I want to talk about your original list of accusations when you kind of called a team meeting and you, you started to get to the bottom of this. And the reason we're going to jump back and forth is because I want to show um, the differences in how petty it was to how serious it got and how quickly it got. Yeah. Um, List of accusations. You stole a Red Bull. Yep. You don't even drink Red Bull, right? Uh, you know, I I do every once in a while, but that was yeah. It was uh, it was I stole a Red Bull six months ago. Yeah, 
It was an EOD tech though that it came out right. That that came out yeah. on the stand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you stole sunglasses, although they were found on the side of the bed. Well, what was told to me is you stole them. I said I don't have them. He's like, no, I have them now because you put them back when I said somebody stole them. Which I was like, okay, no, I didn't steal them. And then yeah, it came out during trial that it was actually he lost them under a bed. You broke a sniper rifle magazine. That's true. The sniper rifle, uh, the mag, yeah, that broke when we were on an op, and uh, I, you know, we were on deployment. But when he brought it up during that meeting, I was like. Okay. Uh, I went and got the money. I was like, how much was it? He told me and I gave it to him probably 30 minutes after the meeting. Didn't pay for a haircut. Also true. <laughs> I got one, one haircut, uh, during that deployment at the end, uh, Tom McNeil, I went to, a, you know, to get a haircut with him at the end of deployment and I forgot to pay him back or, you know, just, he paid for both haircuts. Uh, but the funny thing was, is he didn't even bring that complaint up. It was somebody else. Um, so on it, it's not a big deal. Uh, but I went to the ATM anyways and gave him the money. It's just like, it must be a big deal if someone else is speaking up for you. So here's the one that I, I think got you. I think this is what got the target on the back of you was you were on the first flight back home. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely, um, that gave them ammo for sure. At that point, uh, you know, it was, I've, it's not a popular choice, uh, especially as a platoon chief. Um, but at that point, clear, um, we had no, no tasking ahead of us. We had been sitting around at that point for about two and a half weeks. And, uh, you know, I was having, uh, my wife was having some uh, trouble with at home with a daughter. Um, she was, you know, 16 or 15 at the time. Um, and never once has my wife asked me to come home early or leave for anything. And, uh, she asked me, she's like, Hey, I need you to come home as soon as possible. And, you know, I made a decision. I was, I wrote the, uh, oncoming platoon chief, um, a huge, an email, like, here's everything you need to know. Uh, told the command that I needed to go home. They gave me the approval. They were like, yep, um, go home and take care of whatever you need to. And so, yeah, I took off on the first flight, um, and they definitely use that as ammo. Um, they, as soon as I left the OIC against me, um, they went to him and were telling him all sorts of BS. Um, and, you know, fortunately, and he's, he's an amazing guy. And he was like, this is complete bullshit. Um, and he came and told me about it right when he got back home. Well, I, yeah, I definitely agree that that's what painted the target on you. Um, and, and you, you see from the, the reason I do the list of accusations, cause I want to show how small it started to how big it got, but what was the big, I think the straw that broke the camel's back that, that really had them coming after you. Um, because I, I think that they, in, in the warped sense of thinking that they had, you were the one that led them to Mosul. You were the one that kept them in the fight. You were the one that worked them hard out there and then you're going home. Yeah. I'm sure that in their minds, uh, whatever was uh, going on in their heads, I'm sure that played a huge factor. And so let's talk about I, 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 going into custody and everything that happened from there, because this is where the story gets absolutely bananas. All that is just kind of set up. I wanted to talk about Craig by himself, you know, in the trial and just kind of because I, I consider him kind of the ringleader of everything. 
Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, so let's talk about getting taken into custody. Very important day that you're taken into custody and very important to you. And uh, I don't think that was by happenstance. It definitely was not by happenstance. Um, you know, they, I ended up going to a, uh, TBI clinic, a traumatic brain injury clinic, uh, in uh, Camp Pendleton, which is pretty common for operators to go to before they retire so they can get, uh, um, medically checked up. And, um, while I was there, uh, on September 11th of all days, they came in and handcuffed me. They had no reason why they had no charges. Um, they couldn't tell me why they just said that it was signed off by, uh, Admiral Green and Commander Rosenblum, who, you know, they were in charge of, uh, West coast seal teams at that time. Um, so I got thrown in, uh, what they call pretrial confinement. Um, except in the UCMJ or in the military, there is no bail system. Uh, so you are pretty much stuck in there until your trial. And, uh, that could be five months to two years. Well, I thought it was interesting the day that they took you into custody, you weren't having a great day that day because one of your counselors had said that you needed to make amends with (laughs) the enemy that you had been fighting your whole career. And so you weren't having a, a, a great day. And then these guys come in and take you into custody. And I thought, what is going on? Like, if, if he's going to snap, it's going to be right now. Yes. Um, and that's that's what they wanted. Um, that's why they chose that day, you know, handcuffed me in front of everybody. And uh, believe me, I was close. Uh, I don't know if I was close to snapping, but I was close to fighting, uh, especially the two guys that were going to handcuff me. Um, but you know, thank God my common sense and me look, you know, this is it's just gonna make this whole situation look a lot worse. This is a mistake. I'm going to comply. Um, and I, I, I actually thought I was this, you know, I'm going to get out of this within a couple hours. This is a huge mistake. Um, and so I just played along and it wasn't until, um, they threw me, <laughs> threw me in solitary confinement where I was like, okay, this this is not right. <laughs> so, uh, I think there was a thought in your head that you point out in the book that you thought about kicking that master chief down the stairs, uh, because he, yeah, <laughs> he was being pretty smug and wasn't answering your questions. I think you put in there that the thought rolled through your head to kick him down the stairs. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, and that I think I was so mad at him because we were friends. Right. Um, you know, he, he was my SEA in that deployment. Um, he had been out with me. Um, he knew this was bullshit, but yet he was just following orders. But at the same time, I'm like, hey, man. Oh, like, oh, okay. Uh, and I'm glad you said that because this is where I want to get into this. The guy's a master chief. He's, he's not new to the Navy. So when you say yeah. that he's just following orders, that's a crock of shit. He's just following orders. I don't, I, it doesn't make any sense to me at that rank. Can't they say something? Cause I was like, dude, you have the rank say something like this. You know, this isn't right. Say something. And that's why I think I was so disappointed and angry was the fact that he wouldn't even look me in the eye. He just was like, oh, I'm just doing what I'm told. Um, and that's it. And he, it was the last time I ever saw him. Well, besides when he showed up at my, uh, hearings. Right. But okay. I guess going back to that, what is he trying to get out of it? He's a master chief. 
Like, what more are they gonna are they gonna give him a house, a car? I, I don't understand. Like, I get it. I, I I will even say I get it for some people that are trying to make their career happen. Maybe guys that are trying to go to DevGru or something like that. I get it. I, I, I'm not saying it's right, but I understand the motivation behind it. What motivation does he have? He's got he's in fear for his career, um, which that's what we I found out uh, during my whole thing. You know, I had a lot of guys that were supporting me, but they were supporting me from the sidelines. Uh, any officer, any higher enlisted that spoke up on my side, they targeted them. Um, the prosecution would target them. And the command would target them. Um, and you got to think like these guys, as you, you know, they, they're long in the tooth in their career. Yeah. They have more to lose if they get their uh, trident yanked or their rent, you know, rank taken away than an E5. So I, and I'm not making excuses for them. I just am trying, you know, I've, I've tried to understand from their point of view and I do get why they decide to protect themselves, but I don't agree with it. But that almost seems like a s- systemic problem to me. Oh, if, if if you're a master chief and you've served your whole career honorably, he has to have time in enough time to retire uh, to, to have the, I, I don't want to use the word ability, but to have the uh, threat of having your trident taken, doesn't that fight to your point even more? You would think so. Um, it's, and it is, it's, like you said, it's a systemic problem that's been going on in our community uh, for a while now. Um, you know, we've, our community has been overrun by officers. Um, you know, I have different feelings or mixed feelings on officers. I've, I've worked with some really great ones and then a majority of them are just not the same. Uh, they're not, they didn't join for the, the same reasons as the enlisted. But unfortunately, these officers make rank. And they pretty much run the Navy. They run NSW and they have taken, they've taken the backbone out of the enlisted community. Uh, the chiefs, you know, were used to be, able, used to be called the backbone of the Navy, which, you know, they still are. Um, but, you know, in our community, they hold no weight. Um, it doesn't matter your rank. If the officers like do this or go away, um, they know what's going to come. So, as you get moved to the brig, they put you in, they put you in solitary. You meet up with the, the warden. Um, and I, I have a feeling you had kind of mixed signals about her or mixed, mixed feelings about her. Is it, or am I wrong in reading that? Cause I felt like you were like, you're kind of full of shit, but I'll get on board with you. Yeah. I mean, I was just trying to comply with everything. I mean, she came in, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, another officer just um, very out of st- out of uh, standards uh, for the even for the Navy. Uh, but and you know, she threw her rank around right away and was like, "This is my prison," or I forget what she said. And I, I mean, it was like, "Okay, you know, I'm gonna comply." I told her I was like, "I'm not here to cause any disturbance. Like, this is um, I'll whatever." You know, I I was like, "I'll play the game. Just get me out of here." Uh, but, uh, you know, I come to find out when the more I was in there, yeah, she was, a uh, she was a piece of work. Let's talk about your first night. I want to know everything's going through your brain. You don't talk about it a lot in the book. You, you explain a little bit, but I want to know from your mouth 
first night where you're like, oh, shit, maybe it's not a couple hours. Maybe I'm going to be in here for a while. What is something has got to be going through your brain at this point? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was as soon as they uh, put me in solitary, uh, you know, that's the first place they took me. They they put you in a cell and, you know, they pretty much let you know you're in solitary and you you're not getting out. Um, it, you need to go take a shower. They uh, would handcuff me, my legs and arms to walk me five feet to the nasty shower that was next door. Uh, and uh, they'd slide my food under underneath. But I, I, at first I was like, yeah, I was definitely confused. Um, and I, you know, a little bit of panic, uh, like, okay, what's going on? But then I, I knew I was like, okay, I, I actually got to call my lawyer. Um, that first night I talked to him for five minutes uh, it was very brief. He was like, there's no bail system. Um, but he said, you are going to an IRO, which is initial review hearing. Um, and that to me sounded promising at the time. He was like, you know, this is where they determine if you are a threat or if you, if you should be locked up or not. And I was like, Oh, well then I'm out of here at that hearing. You know, like there's, and to my mind, I'm like, what are they going to say? I haven't been doing anything. The first, uh, three days in solitary. I was like, okay, like that's, that's my next goal is to get to this hearing. Um, but it, it was definitely difficult. Um, I couldn't sleep. Uh, you know, um, I already had a jacked up back. Um, and I was taking, um, melatonin at the time about a lot of it to go to sleep. Um, and they, <laughs> I asked for it if I could have some, and they were you know, like, no, you're not allowed to have any. Um, they offered me antidepressants instead, which I refused. Uh, that was hilarious to me. You can't take yeah. melatonin, but here's a bunch of pills if you want them. Oh yeah, they want to keep all the prisoners drugged up in there. I mean, that's that's the the key. Uh, but yeah, I I just uh, found ways to keep my mind busy. Um, you know, I I think I had asked they when I got a meal under the door that had a styrofoam cup. I kept it and just started playing basketball and in my cell, like to keep doing, I mean, you just do little things to keep your mind focused and not start freaking out. Um, and then I was just mainly focused on the IRO coming up. And then, so, I mean, it, it was difficult. Uh, like the first three days were difficult <laughs> for sure. Well, you're still not the first three days. If I remember right, you still don't know what you're being accused of. No, I didn't know what I was being accused yeah. of, uh, for about a month. So um, about a month and a half, I, I had no charges. So crazy thoughts. Like, I, I really want to know, like, are you thinking like, okay, maybe they're going to, is there anything? Or are you just like, I have no clue. What I, had, could you be know, I had heard, I had heard rumors, um, throughout the time up to that point, since I got back, what, uh, some of these guys were saying. And I mean, these rumors were so, and this is the seal teams for you too. It's one big, uh, sewing circle. Um, you know, and these rumors ranged from <laughs> that I was uh, stomping babies out to uh, I was raping multiple women, um, and then all the way to I stole a Red Bull. Believe me, that is not uncommon for the SEAL teams. It's like a game of telephone. Um, these guys have nothing better to do but to uh, talk shop and gossip. So <laughs> those rumors can escalate pretty to. Uh, pretty crazy things. Um, but you know, I definitely knew I was like, there's, there's something, uh, that they're going to get me on. And 
that's the other thing, you know, war, you go to combat, it's not black or white. It's you live in the gray um, and you got to make decisions sometimes that, you know, it's like, okay, is this breaking the ROEs or is this bending the ROEs? Uh, um, and so I, in my mind, I'm like, it, it could be that you can take any situation when you're on combat deployment and make it into a war crime. You know, even if, even a legit shot, you can have somebody there be like, nope, I don't think that was legit. And then boom, it's an investigation. So um, that happened. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And so there was a lot, I mean, a lot of things running through my mind. Well, let's, let's talk about that one. I, 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 let's bring that one up real quick. Cause that was brought up. A legit shot is taken. Yeah. They say that it wasn't uh, a legit shot. They say you came over the radio, say you, and, and the way they paint it out to be is you guys missed him. I got him. Ha ha. Uh, picked him off. Yeah. The guy yep. in the tower with you is saying, didn't happen like that exactly um so <laughs> with those so they charged me with uh shooting a elderly man and a little girl a lot later um after my initial charges uh we actually went to an article 32 which is a it's a civilian equivalent of a grand jury um where they you know decide if they're going to take you to court martial um at that article 32 the case they presented was so weak. Um, the, the prosecution stood up and was like, oh, well, we want to add on two more murder charges. My lawyers at the time and were like, what the hell? And they were like, yeah, we have one of the individuals saying he shot a woman and we have another individual saying he shot a woman. Uh, the judge denied those charges. Um, he's like, there's no evidence here um, to present this but this is the beauty of the ucmj the judge is not overall in charge my command is and so my command which was commander rosenblum said nope leave those two charges on there so i got three murder charges now um but you know lo and behold as the case progressed and we were getting evidence as well we had it right in there um that the person in the tower was like nope that was a legitimate shot or you know that didn't happen that way and they completely pushed that off to the side and they actually hid that for a while um they hid that person's statements and that's how they were able to convince i think the co to keep those uh charges on but the crazy part about those charges eddie are anybody know where the body's at mm -mm. can anyone describe the guy no uh does anyone know what day this happened in particular mm -mm. I, I, there, I don't even understand how that is a, and maybe it, because it's military wide, I don't understand how that's even a charge. That's like saying that, uh, I don't know. You went up and drop kicked a goat in the face. I, I mean, there's, there's absolutely no physical evidence, uh, testimony other than their testimony, because there of course was refuted testimony. There's nothing. I don't understand how that stands as a charge or how that even gets built into a charge. Well, you got to think, you know, the initial charge was uh, premeditated murder of an ISIS right. terrorist. Right. The reaction the prosecution got and my command got was not the one they were looking for, which everyone's like, who fucking cares? Like, what are we doing here? Why are we charging this? 
added those two charges, other two charges on to really like degrade my character, to really drive this point home. Like this guy is a psychopath. And this is what they did is they added those two charges on and immediately leaked that to the press. So all these articles that were coming out about me were this guy went rogue. This guy went completely batshit crazy and was shooting civilians, shooting, you know, little girls. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, people read that for the first time and they were like, yep, screw this dude. Like he's evil, you know, because it's the, the articles painted me in this light. And that that's really the reason they added those two charges on in the first place. And I think they actually thought they were going to get away with it. Uh, but, you know, obviously at trial, it didn't, it didn't pan out. Uh, it can't pan out just as we thought it would. And the jury even told the prosecution, like, how did you even bring these to a court martial? Like, how was this, this even come to this? I guess my question to it is then you have that your charge was shooting a little girl charged with shooting an unarmed old man and you're charged with the original charge killing the isis terrorist yeah aren't those the two charges you want to bring forward before a terrorist <laughs> right yeah i mean and that's i'm i'm telling you man like you're it was just uh my wife put it best while we were in court she was like this whole thing is like a mix between a few good men and my cousin Benny. It's just, it's one, th I mean, I, I don't think I could even explain it properly. Just being in that courtroom day after day and watching just the amateur shenanigans that went on and that were allowed to go on and that were just like the things that were overlooked, like, yep, we'll just keep going. And you, you literally just sit there and you're like, I can't believe this is like, you can't make this up. And, uh, I mean, that was the whole, the whole trial was like that. How are you hiding your emotions though? Like you've got to be like super fly pissed at this point. I, I think at that point, man, it doesn't like, I'll tell you this getting leading up to trial or getting there. It no longer becomes about what's true or not. Um, it's like, okay, this, I have the government coming against me, you know, the command coming against me. Um, we're fighting an uphill battle here. It really like, to me, I mean, the whole anger thing, I was just more in survival. I was like, I want to, we got to survive this. Um, and we, we survive it by playing the part, you know, and my lawyers, uh, Bernie Carrick, all t you know, they, I had a great team and they were like, listen, you cannot show any emotion, you know, don't, don't look at the jury. Don't even, you know, don't look at anybody a certain amount of way. So I really <laughs> strained stone faced, you know, but I did break, uh, you know, my, I let my emotions come out a couple times during trial where I, I was close to losing it and jumping over the table. Uh, but I just knew I was like anything that I do, um, any face that I make, any action I take. And this was before the, the trial too. It's like, that's a detriment to our case. That's a detriment to what my wife, my brother, all the Americans that got behind me at the time, that it will, that's an injustice to them. If I screw this up by doing something stupid or making a stupid face. So I really just focused on like playing the part and just getting through. 
So let's go back since you're talking about pretrial and everything. You finally get moved out of the brig. It took some powerful people to step in. Uh, and let's talk about that for a minute. When they were trying to get you released in the first place, and they wrote to uh, Admiral, uh, Admiral Rosenblum, and um, he wrote a letter back to some of the senators and things that were congressional guys that were getting together before the president stepped in. And he pretty much told him in this letter, uh, October 3rd of 2018, thank you for your letter and complaint to me, but you can go fuck yourself. This is how it's going to be. I mean, this letter is degrading to read that your wife sent me. Like, he talks down to these senators and congressmen unbelievably about, thanks oh, yeah. for your concern, but go fuck yourself. Yep. Uh, I mean, that's that's the elitist attitude uh, that Rosenblum had. And honestly, a lot of the high upper brass have. Um, they think that they're God. Um, they think that what they say is that's it. Um, and, you know, I'm everybody's below me. Uh, you know, that, that's the, um, you know, their their arrogance knew no bounds. But, you know, in the end, they saw, you know. What happened? Uh, <laughs> they saw it's like, dude, you're not you're not the big dick around here, man. Like, it's. Uh, but that's what you your know, whole present. your whole story just seems like a dick measuring contest. Everybody was oh, yeah. jumping on board. Yeah. Oh yeah, and that's the thing I try to tell people is like, anybody that got attached to this case that was on the other side, like, they were forced to lie, cheat. Uh, deceit, um, they, and they were forced to do all those things because this whole case was started on a bunch of lies. I was like, so you cannot win a case like this without lying yourself. And so, I mean, these, the command, the prosecution, NCIS had do done so much deceit, so much corruption, so many lies, they were never going to turn around and say they made a mistake. They were going to die on that hill. They couldn't, though. Yeah. They they had to die on that hill. And yeah. it's better to die on that hill than say you were wrong because there's repercussions for being wrong. You can die on the hill and everyone will let it pass. You admit that you were wrong and there's repercussions that come from that. That's true. And that's I think that's my uh, heartburn still is like there has been no repercussions for any of these individuals nope. at all. And that's how we're going to wrap this up. But I want to go back when you, you finally get moved pre-trial. They put you in a building. It's supposed to be nice. You're supposed to have a gym, food, all this kind of stuff that you didn't have in the brig. And your list of complaints, I have your handwritten list of complaints about everything. Yeah. I mean, no heat, showers not working, uh, canceled medical appointments, all these things. So they move you into these barracks. And I thought, especially to a guy like you that enjoys working out, because you talk about it quite a bit in the book. Uh, to, to let you go in now, I'm going to laugh because it was funny when I read it. It's not a funny thing, but it's funny to me when I read it, this guy that loves working out, he says, that's how I, you know, I'm going to get through this. I'll just work out. I'll, I'll keep my mind focused on something. <laughs> they let you work out one time in the gym and then close it down in the barracks. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was one thing after the other, man. Uh, yeah, they, I worked out and it was a nice gym too. I was like, Oh, I can, this will be fine. Like 
I don't need anything else. Uh, yeah, they literally shut that gym down. Um, <laughs> the day after then, you worked out. Yeah. And so I, even then I was like, okay, Hey man, like I'll just do like right outside. They had like a little courtyard. I mean, it was still attached to the building. I was like, I'll just go out there, do some stuff. And they're like, no, you're not allowed out anywhere. Like you, I wasn't allowed to leave my room without an escort. Um, you know, and it was, they played little games like that throughout the whole time, you know, and I, I always found ways around them. I had a buddy, uh, sneak me in a kettlebell and one of those pull up board, uh, pull up bar door jam things. And, I made it work that way. Um, and then eventually when I was in there long enough, I was like, fuck this. And I would go out on a run and I found times where I could do it. Uh, it, but yeah, it was just, a, it was a constant battle and struggle, uh, just to get the things that, you know, you, you felt like, okay, I'm justified in asking for this stuff. Um, I mean, it, even, you know, to the point where they were forced to bring me a phone so I could talk to my lawyers because I was, yeah still not able to talk to my lawyers. So they brought me a phone with no service yeah. and pretty much told me to go fuck myself when I told them there was no service. Well, I mean, uh, okay, I, I got to play devil's advocate again. If you hung out of a third story window, there was service. That's all you had to do was hang uh, out of the third story window. I wasn't allowed on the third story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you said, yeah, I could get service. If I hung out of a window, I'm like, holy shit. Now they're going to think he's trying to commit suicide by jumping out of a window. And he's just trying to talk on the phone. So yeah. let me ask you, do you think they closed that gym for spite? It said construction on the sign, but do you think they closed it for spite? Uh, you know, man, everything that had happened up to that point, everything they had done to me, I, I can lean towards they closed it for spite, but there's, there is a possibility that it was closed for construction. But I mean, everything they had pulled, and I mean, they were pulling stuff when I was in the break as well. Um, you know, I was treated uh, a certain way in there. I was uh, denied working out in there, denied um, a lot of things. And a lot of it was just to make me snap. So at that point, when I had finally gotten out, my attitude at that time was, okay, fuck you guys. Like you, this is on purpose. Um, uh, but you know, there is a possibility it could have been just for construction as well. I, I seriously doubt it, but let's talk about across the street, the building across the street that would be so nice. Your wife sent me some video of, uh, the sidewalk that led to the building across the street, which contained food, haircut, medical appointments, pretty much anything that you needed to do. Except there was this pesky red painted line on the sidewalk that said, Eddie can't cross this line or Eddie's going back to the brig. Yep. Uh, yeah. So they had me in that building. Um, and then it was attached to the hospital right by the Balboa hospital. And in the hospitals, everything you think about alley, subway, like you just said. Right. Um, the, the first week uh, I was out, I actually had a court appearance. And uh, I went, I actually told the escort I had a court appearance and I wanted to get a haircut. He was like, okay. And we walked down to the barbershop, got a haircut. I had not even made it back to my room yet when we got a phone call saying I was going to get thrown back in the brig. For getting a haircut um so they had they had people watching me uh you know that lady did I, yeah, not was, like you no they that I, lady did not like you at all no not one bit uh i mean and i don't know like i don't know why to this you know why you chose me to hate but either way it's like uh they 
everything they did was just to try and drive me to snap. They even sent, <laughs> it was, I don't know if I put this story in the book. Uh, they sent a psych. Um, I they think did. I was, you did. Okay. I did. All right. Yeah. And you know, and the guy walks in like acting like, Oh, he's there to check up on me, but he does like this quick recon in my room to make sure I don't have <laughs> any of the things I'm not supposed to. And then was like, Oh, how are you doing? And I was like, well, how do you think I'm doing? You know, and I laid it out for him and he was like, Oh, I was like, and I told him, I was like, dude, you're just here to check, check if I'm going to kill myself. And he's like, well, are you? And I was like, no, but I was like, if I did, or do you see any red flags right now that would probably lead to my suicide? And he's like, Oh, I see your point and left. <laughs> I never came back. <laughs> I, I really think you should have told him, didn't you see me hanging out of the third story window? Come on. guy. <laughs> yeah. So all these things, and they, they keep holding you back from them even more. I want you to give me a distance. Cause it doesn't say in the book from your barracks pre-trial to that hospital where all your appointments were. How far? Like in feet. Oh, 400 feet. Okay. Do you know how many appointments you missed? You have any idea? Uh, not, not at the top of my head. I missed a lot. A lot. Yeah. Like your wife sent me all the medical appointments missed. There's pages of them. Oh yeah. And you know that, the command tried to lie about that too as well. Um, they were telling him, oh no, he's making all the appointments until we showed them the proof. And then they just put their heads down and I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, they were denying me all, they were trying to deny me all my medical appointments. Um, but you know, I, I made it, to, I made it to some and then thank God, uh, you know, shout out to the, the ladies that were at the pain clinic there. I mean, you know, ordered my handcuffs off. And then really just brought me back to the room and they were like, do whatever we can do for you. And I mean, just that little bit of like, uh, I get hospitality and you, you just feel like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. People do like me, you know? Uh, do you, so. do you feel at this point? Like the world's against me? Like, no, no, never. No, I had so like my wife and brother were out there fighting the whole time. Absolutely. They, the amount of support we got from, you know, half this country or make more than half this country. I don't know, but it was super humbling. Um, I mean, because being in the military, you're just constantly deploying, doing your job and you don't really think about anything else. Uh, you know, you know, people are like, Oh, thank you for your service. And you're like, Oh, great. You know, I, I enjoy doing what I'm doing. Um, but once I, you know, you see these people that don't know you get behind you, I, yeah, there was no way, like, I was, I mean, I was definitely, like, angry at certain parts of the country or certain media outlets. I'm like, why are you doing this to us? Uh, but, uh, you know, there was so much support. And then even to this day, I mean, we we were able to take this clown show of a tragedy and use it for something good now, which is, like, we started the Pipe Hitter Foundation. Uh, and I'm telling you what, it's, we got it going last year, and it is going really awesome right now you know we're we're helping uh you know some law some law enforcement uh we're helping a guy out in san diego matt dagas um who's being unlawfully charged um we help helping active duty guys a lot of people that are put in the same situation i was in not as dire but either way we provide uh legal funds for them um to pay 
funds to pay for the legal fees and then uh, emergency relief support as they're going through that stressful time. And then we will also advocate for them if they want to. Um, you know, my wife is a genius at uh, branding and marketing, and she's pretty much used that skill now to sit here and advocate for people that need to be spoken up for. Um, and, you know, without what we went through, we would never be able to have this platform to help those people. So I, I mean, last year was a lot of uh, moving past the anger um, and just, you know, I was pissed. Um, and, you know, if I sit here and think about some of the shit by myself, I can get angry again, but it's not that, that anger is not going to do me any good. Uh, it's not going to do my family any good. You know, we need to keep moving forward um, and sit there and help others that need it. Well, you're helping a certain, and we'll get into it in a little bit, a certain Lieutenant Colonel in the Marines right now. Yep. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller. Um, I mean, that that guy, what he did, um, that's exactly why I started this foundation. Um, that guy is dragging his balls around in a dump truck right now. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I don't think people understand the gravity of what that guy did, especially in his position to stand up and speak out like that. But that's exactly the type of leaders that we need in our military right now to call bullshit when it needs to be called and to make sure people are held accountable for their actions. Uh, and, you know, they're going to come after him hardcore. Um, you know, there's a, after the past 20 years of this war, there's been one general relieved and that was, I think, Petraeus because he spoke out and said, Afghanistan is not going well. So they booted him. And then the next officer that gets relieved after this shit show we've seen in the past week is the one person to say, hey, who's going to hold themselves accountable for this mess? Gone. So, you know, those are the individuals that are we need to be fighting for uh, because those are the leaders that we need. So let's go into the trial because I want to wrap up the trial and then I want to get into all your foundations and stuff because I really want to promote that stuff because it's really gone well. But I think that there's some things about the trial that we need to talk about. There were some other things that that went on in that that, that really stood out to me. And I only want to talk about certain people. Um, I want to talk about Corey Scott. And I want to talk about Dalton Tolbert. You pick what order we go in go with Dalton first. Okay. You seem to be the most irritated with this guy in the book during the trial. As much as Craig Miller and all these other people, this guy seemed to really stick in your craw in the book. Yeah. Um, and you know, he does for a specific reason. Um, you know, I know we, you know, Craig Miller is the ringleader because they, they pretty much put the responsibility on him to go forward with these accusations. Um, and they're like, well, you know, we'll be behind you if you go do this. Dalton Tolbert is a real master manipulator here of the whole thing. Um, he is not a, uh, dumb individual. He's actually a pretty bright dude. Um, pretty good operator. Uh, but he is just a little weasel and he always, always has been. And he really got, into Craig's uh, brain and was like, you need to do this. Uh, you know, Dalton hated me from the get-go as soon as I took over that platoon. Um, that came out much later. Uh, but him, like, he is the real the real issue to me. Um, and that's I think that's why, you know, I, it came off in the book that way as well. I 
what I thought was interesting about him is we talked about the tall glass of pudding that came in. But when this guy shows up in court, it's different. It's a, You wrote it different. And I don't know if that came to you while you were writing it, if you felt that. But when you read it or when you listen to you, t- even when you listen to it, because I have both the, the regular book and the audio book. When you hear, which is pretty much you just explain in the book as you're, you know, going through the book. Um, when you get to him, there's a difference in your voice. There's a difference in how you wrote that. Um, and and it's it's talks about stuff that and I think what really sticks out is he's a member of, of a certain group now. Um, and that what he didn't like about you was that you beat him. Yeah. Um, you know, it everything's a competition in the teams, uh, but it's friendly competition. But Dalton, he always took it, you know. If, yeah, if I beat him at something or if somebody was better than him at something, it was he took it as like a insult to him and then he would either attack that person uh, in some and attack that person in a very uh, millennial way, which is, you know, talk shit about them behind their backs or through text messages. And that's, you know, that's exactly what he did with me the whole time I was in the platoon, unbeknownst to me at the time. Uh, you know, Craig Miller is actually the one who uh, – told me all this um, after deployment that Dalton has been against me the whole time. Um, but what really bothers me about him is what came out during trial. Uh, you know, he, when we read his text messages off and this is the beauty of it is he had no idea that we had those text messages. Um, and so when we read the text message off that, uh, you know, he said everybody he works with over at seal team six is just like Eddie Gallagher and they don't care about killing civilians. That right there said it all to me. Um, I'm like, okay, at the most elite fighting unit in the world is now all war criminals too, because Dalton Tolbert says so. Um, And when we asked him if he had deployed with that unit yet, he was like, no, which even stood out even more because I'm like, you know, you haven't even deployed with him and you're accusing them of war crimes. I'm like, this is the type of individual that you're expected to sit here and believe and listen to. Uh, I mean, his character was just flawed from the get-go. I mean, then, you know, it didn't help that uh, he said he was going to burn the courthouse down, and uh, I think he called the judge a faggot. There was the thing. The judge was gay. Was gay. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I didn't. that didn't really go over well for him too much in court either. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just he's a punk. Uh, he's just he's a Here's, punk. punk yeah. So, yeah. Okay. You can explain it because I've never been in that special operations world or in that SEAL world. How in the hell is the statements that he makes and the behaviors that he does, especially talking about the new team that he's with before he even deploys with them, how is that not career suicide? How do they not weed Uh, that guy out before it ever gets to this? Oh, well, you know, like I said, he, he's not a bad operator. Like he, he can do the job. Um, and he's actually, you know, decent at it. So, I mean, when they assess, you know, for selection, they're assessing how well you are at your job. They are assessing your other, uh, qualities and personality and everything like that, but you can't, you know, I don't think they'll be able to, in a six month period, be like, okay, is this guy going to accuse everybody here of war crimes? Um, I mean, I, yeah. But 
afterwards, you know, you would think that would be career suicide, but the problem is Admiral Green went to each command and said that these guys who testified against me were heroes and that uh, no one was to touch them. And so right there is an order given from an admiral, do not touch these guys, which I can tell you a lot of guys wanted to destroy them. Uh, but, you know, they, that's why they've been untouched so far. Um, you know, not to say that they haven't, some of them haven't been fired or moved around um, because that has happened. But well, either way you, or not. You were no accused of that stuff. You were accused of that. Of why certain people didn't make certain teams. Oh yeah. I mean that, yeah, I was accused. That was one of my charges was, uh, I, I forget what the, the wording of it is. It's pretty much, I was trying to hurt Dalton Tolbert's career because I had texted a buddy over there saying not to trust him, uh, that he was a piece of shit, but little do you know, that's common practice. Uh, if a guy is going to try out for a uh, green team or dev group, the cadre usually calls back to his last command or his last platoon chief, like, Hey, what's up with this guy? Like to get some gouge, not that they're going to take that gouge as gospel, but they are going to note it. Yeah. I was called about him and I gave people the honest, my honest assessment. One other thing that I want to talk to about Dalton, um, was that you said that just now when I asked about him going there, that he's pretty good at his job, but you stated in the book that there were new guys getting more kills than Dalton and DeLille. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems to me like, d does it come out later or because is he, because it makes no sense to me. If he's telling you over there, we're going out too much, we're working too much, we're doing whatever. Why would you want to go to the elite of the elite? They're going to constantly work. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing that baffled me. Uh, I mean, I did understand his complaint uh, that, he needed time to work out uh, to prepare for selection, which I completely understood. Um, and I gave him that time. I was like, okay, then I will take you off the roster. So you will work out. And uh, he then comes back the next day saying it's unfair that I took him off the roster, uh, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I don't, you know, what, what do you actually want here? Uh, but yeah, it's, it was definitely baffling to me, his mindset and the way that uh, he thought, the you know his career was going to be especially if he got over to development group uh yeah those guys are busy um and they i was like i don't know what this guy's going to do once you know if he makes it uh but you know he's over there um but i got where you know i've gotten where he's not doing anything he's been moved to a spot where he will not be deploying all right last guy i want to talk about in the trial Corey scott this was kind of the hinge that uh, made the ability for you and I to sit here. <laughs> uh, some some unanswered questions that were brought up in trial. Uh, when I first started listening to the testimony and reading about it, I, I thought he was going to tell the truth. I thought that this was the guy that was gonna that was gonna do it. He talked to you at the law offices. There was just something different about him. There was a different aura about him. So I don't understand when we get to the part and they ask him, did you stab the guy? He still stated yes. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it didn't make any sense to me. Why say that if you're going to say what he said 10 minutes later? I don't know. 
Uh, I mean, I don't understand. That was something that him and his lawyer, I guess, had worked out uh, on what to say up there. I, to this day, I still, we have not talked about it, um, of why he said it. Um, everything was done for a reason. Uh, everything was said for a reason. And that's all you need to know. And I was like, okay, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to ask any more questions. I still don't know why he said that I stabbed that guy, especially in the, he could say I stabbed him where I actually jabbed the guy, which was in his rib, uh, but did not break skin. Um, but that's just one of those questions I, I don't have the answer to uh, why he said what he said up there. I almost wonder when I read it, if, if he's just trying to maybe feel better about the situation, like give some truth to his lie or give some semblance of a truth to his lie. I, you know what I mean? Even though it's not true at all, just in internally for him, like, yeah, maybe it wasn't as bad as I said, but it was still bad. Yeah. I think there might be some of that involved. I mean, cause you, and this is the relationship between him and like Craig Miller and the rest of the accusers is very awkward. Um, even after that, like, you know, showing up at, at court, waiting in the uh, witness room. I mean, I think they they were all in a fight for themselves, too. Uh, I think some of them got entrapped and they were looking for a way out. Uh, and I think Corey sort of stuck with the whole stabbing thing as to not break ties with some of those guys. I, And that's, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of when it, when it pertains to, you know, like you said, um, he stuck to that for, so he didn't like, well, I didn't completely lie. And these guys aren't completely lying. Uh, who knows? So he, he says that, uh, stated that he asphyxiated the terrorist mm -hmm. and it's pointed out by your attorneys that wait, what? I mean, that's literally how it's written is wait, what, what did he just say? Yeah. And so they ask him again, yet when you go back through all the interviews, the testimonies, the sworn statements, everything. No one ever asks when he says he asphyxiated that that asphyxiation was a cause of death. I would think a knife that everyone could describe that you carried around going into someone's neck would be a cause of death. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, that goes back to shoddy investigation. That was, uh, that was done. I mean, they never asked, the tough questions or questions that would go against their theory. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you, it's, I thought one of the funniest things when Corey's on the stand is <laughs> the prosecution was like, well, why didn't you tell us this before? Why didn't you tell us you did this? And he was like, because I'd be stupid to tell you, like, I saw exactly what you were doing to Eddie Gallagher. Like, why would I admit this to you right off the bat? And that, that makes sense. I, I even almost chuckled in the courtroom. I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's legit. Uh, but yeah, he, you know, that was just one of the things my, my lawyer, uh, my legal team caught. Um, and, you know, thank God he got on the stand and did that. You know, with him though, you forgave him. You, you talk about it right after he's done, but, but he told you like, fuck it. It was him or me. It's not. A, it wasn't an easy thing to come out and actually forgive them. Uh, but when, you know, when they they both came and visited me in the brig, 
Uh, both were straight up honest with me and said that this, this is a bunch of lies, which I already knew, and that uh, they were entrapped. Um, I mean, they literally were looking at me like, we're fucked. Like, we don't know what to do. Um, and I've been been the older guy for so long with them. Uh, you know, Bubbles, I, he was a new guy two platoons ago. I mean, I'd known him. I just felt like I look at them as like uh, my, my own kids, man. Like, I'm like, okay, you guys made a mistake. Let's fix it and let's fucking move on. Uh, you know, I, I always, I have the same love for each, each one of my seal brothers, man. And I know they're not perfect, uh, but I do believe in the brotherhood and I do believe in forgiveness and second chances. And, um, and that's exactly why I did forgive them. Um, and especially when, you know, they acknowledged my family and when they came into court and said sorry to them for everything they put them through, that was it, man. For me, I was like, you know, case closed with this, with them. Uh, um, you know, it's all good moving forward. I, I think you're a better man than me. Um, I, I want to point out one more thing in the trial. If anybody reads the book, listens to any of the audio, you've got to listen to the closing statements uh, by your attorneys. Cause they, yeah destroy they are scorched earth by the time they walk away from there uh yeah fantastic closing arguments um, yeah that's why I, um i when i was writing the book i was like trying my best to describe the closing statements but then i was like you know what i'm just gonna i'm putting it all in there uh word for word because it is so it's so good yeah uh, if anybody listens to that anybody reads it that is a huge part of this because i think that it culminates in everything that happened you're cleared of all charges except for one taking a picture which yeah. once again surprised me because every guy in there nobody was punished except for you yeah exactly uh, i mean that's uh that was the i mean one charge i didn't deny i'm like yeah i, I was in that picture uh and that's just their way of getting their pound of flesh out of me. Uh, they knew they had lost, and they're like, this is their last-ditch effort, and that's what they, you know, you know, they tried with it, and then they tried to throw the book at me uh, for it. Man, uh, it's an amazing story. People have to read this book, The Man in the Arena, From Fighting ISIS to Fighting for My Freedom. Uh, you did a fantastic job on it. Let's quickly go over your websites and stuff where people can find you. Um, TheEddieGallagher.com. Uh, you have everything on there. Free Eddie Apparel, Seek Battle Cigars, The Book, Battle Rifles, Flags, uh, Redcon One, Brass Knuckles, which you're pushing very hard on Instagram right now. Yeah. Uh, official <laughs> merch, all that kind of stuff is there where you can find it. What made you do this from stepping away? And by the way, I want to point out the free Eddie apparel. I thought I was going to get a free shirt. Um, and then I found out it was just free Eddie. I thought it was, I thought it <laughs> meant like free apparel. I'm like, what, what is, wait, what is this price tag at the end? Uh, <laughs> We'll have, to, we'll have to send you out one. No, no, no. I'm not saying that by any means. I was looking yeah. at him like, oh, he's just giving out apparel. And then I looked, I'm like, no, 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 he's not. Uh, but well, I you, wish. I wish I, if I could, I would. So you got you got cigars, you got rifles, you got everything on here. Is it just, are you showing them like, look, I won this and no one's going to stop me. This is going to be a juggernaut from now on. You know, um, I think <laughs> it was very uh, awkward. Uh, coming out of that whole situation um, and uh, really 
being thrust into the limelight like I was. Um, you know, I got released from prison and I found out right away that uh, everyone knew who I was. Um, my face was everywhere and it just got bigger, you know, as the trial went on. And really, you know, after after the trial and when I was trying to retire, um, Nine Line Apparel, who were just amazing during the whole thing, they got behind us and they helped raise money for the legal fees. Uh, Tyler Merritt, who owns it, offered me, he was like, hey, you know, I can start a brand or a clothing line. And if you just, uh, you know, are the ambassador for it and you can get a paycheck from it. And, you know, this is before I even got out. So I'm like worried about what I'm going to do to provide my family. Uh, so I was like, you know what? Yeah, sure. Uh, let's, you know, and I, I really didn't give it any thought um, because I was still battling some stuff at that time uh, with the command. Uh, it wasn't until I got out. Uh, I really, my wife, who is the, she is the uh, expert the branding expert and everything. She really formulated this plan. She's like, this is the, the route I think we should go moving forward. Um, you already have this platform, um, you know, start something that you believe in um, that, you know, we can, we can both get behind. And really that's where, you know, Seek Battle uh, was formed out of, um, you know, that, that was a motto of mine ever since, you know, I was in. And, you know, I figure, you know, that's, that can be used on the outside as well for people. And, you know, to me, it means like seek discomfort, do something uncomfortable every day. Um, that's what, how you grow, um, learn to suffer in some way and you will grow from that. So that's the sort of the brand I wanted to, you know, seek battle every day. Um, and then of course the fuck around and find out that was, uh, you know, that was actually my wife's motto during this whole thing. I mean, every time, she was just coming back at the prosecution, the media, and my command, and they were losing their minds over her uh, because she was just beating them at every turn. And we would just say, you know, every time they would put something out, we're like, all right, fuck around and find out. We'll see. And we'd put out the facts, and they would get shut down. So, you know, when, uh, when I retired, I gave my wife a pretty sweet retirement gift. Uh, it was a tomahawk uh, from Half Face Blaze that was engraved, fuck around and find out in the handle. Um, and we just started, you know, I was like, we should make some t-shirts out of that. It's an, it's an awesome saying and it's an awesome, awesome words to live by. Uh, so yeah, we, those two things started off and then I think we've just progressed you know, Redcon one, uh, reached out to me and I'm like, I'm into fitness and working out. And that was, you know, they're like, Hey, would you like to be an ambassador? And that's, was perfect for me. Uh, you know, it was a no brainer. And then, um, everything since then has just sort of, uh, you know, worked in play, worked in a place, you know, cigars, um, and, uh, uh, also the rifles and pistols. Uh, that was a local company down here called precision tactical. I, you know, I live down here in the panhandle now and I really wanted to get capacity and that was one way I could, you know, they offered, uh, to build a rifle. Um, I could pick it out, uh, pick out all the parts to it and, um, they would be called seek battle rifle. So that's, the route I went. Now, all of this was very uncomfortable for to go down this route. Uh, thank God I have my wife with me, uh, help me. Uh, we're pretty much business partners now, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, we're going to continue to uh, grow this beast. And the whole premise behind all of it is to serve others. Um, you know, I'm building this all around the uh, nonprofit that we've started. And I want you to talk about that real quick, the Pipe Hitters Foundation. Yeah. So the Pipe Hitters Foundation, that uh, idea was born um, well before, well, 
not too long before we went to trial. Um, I, when I was locked up, uh, I was around a lot of uh, individuals that did not belong there. Um, a lot of them were uh, kids, 18, 19, 20 years old, um, that were serving time for little offenses like failing their drug test or, you know, because they smoked some weed or, um, you know, would accuse them on and be like, oh, that's conduct on becoming a sailor. So now they're doing four years. Um, and, you know, I sat back and thought about this when I was in there. I'm like, these kids who were my son's age uh, at the time, I was like, you know, these kids could have chosen to go to college or done something else with their lives, but they chose to sign up to serve this country and they made a mistake. Okay. They, they smoked some weed. They should not be serving five to eight years of their life because of that. Um, you know, so I was like, something has to be done. And I would, I would tell my wife these stories about these kids. And, you know, I was trying to mentor some of them when I was in there too. And, um, you know, that's when we both were like, you know what we, because of, and this is another thing we kept saying, like, this was happening to us for a reason. Um, this, this was put on our plate for a specific reason. Now at the time it was a little hard to find that reason, uh, but we were fighting, but, um, afterwards we were like, you know what, this, this did happen for a reason. It gave us this platform to be able to fight for others. Um, so we started the pipe hitter foundation and what that does is it uh, provides legal aid, emergency relief funds for law enforcement, first responders, and active duty military. Uh, if they're put in situations like ours, they don't have to be as dire as ours, but if they're being unjustly accused and we can see that the, uh, the deck is being stacked against them, um, we will come in and support the individual. If they're being accused or charged of something, they can fill out a grant on the pipehitterfoundation.org. I have an amazing uh, board, which we review those cases uh, twice a month. Um, I have <clears throat> a mixture of uh, law enforcement, SEALs, lawyers, other advocate, like congressional uh, assistants on there. And we do a very diligent job of going through each case. And if everybody gives a thumbs up, then that's it. We are uh, gonna start raising money for that person and nice. doing whatever they need. Nice. Uh, amazing, amazing organization. Everything that you've done, Eddie, your story is fucking fantastic. It was, I know that it was rough to go through, but fantastic book, fantastic story. Everything that's done with you guys, if you want more of Eddie Gallagher and you definitely need more of him in your life, go to the Eddie uh, that's his website. That's got the seek battle, the Eddie apparel, the book, the rifles, everything there. For the legal side, pipehitterfoundation.org. You can go there. Uh, they are a organization that's going to help out people in need, just like Eddie was. It's a very dear and near to his heart, so you know that it's coming from somewhere that it needs to be. Eddie, it was an amazing honor to meet you, to talk to you, to get to ask you questions about this book, and I'm so glad that you came here, and I really appreciate it. That's going to be it for the show, guys. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube at the DTD podcast. Remember, the best stories are true, and you come here every week because I give them to you. We'll catch you on the next one. That's Eddie. I'm DJ. We'll see you later. Bye. Thank you, brother.